Well, welcome back to our series uh, through the Apostle Peter's first letter to the church. And specifically, as we are told in the introduction, this letter is written to a group of churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. For today's message, it'll be important to remember that these were Gentile churches, uh, which can also be seen within our text today. To be clear, the churches receiving this letter consisted not mostly of God-fearing Jews who had believed Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, but rather pagans who had believed. Keep that in mind when we read our text in just a moment. Also, please recall from the verses immediately prior to today's text that as believers in Christ, we become part of this living temple. This kingdom of God, this household of faith, which is being expanded and built up one living stone at a time. The original living stone, that foundational rock of the entire building being Christ himself. We are also told that just like him, even though we uh, will be rejected by this world, we are at the same time found to be precious, choice, and usable to God. But then in the verse immediately preceding our text for today, we are reminded that those who do not trust in Christ as their cornerstone eventually stumble over him, falling into an eternity separated from God. And so there's no middle ground in God's kingdom. You will either allow yourself by faith to be built upon the rock of Christ, or you will fall over him stumbling headlong into a godless and terrible eternity. In light of this, remember that I ask each of you to consider as it relates to how you view God, whether Jesus Christ is actually the cornerstone of your faith, or if the truth is that Jesus is more of a stumbling block for you. Once more, I will ask in terms of how you think about spiritual things, how you think about God. Is Jesus Christ the cornerstone of your faith? Or is Jesus more of an unanswered question? I could see wheels turning as I spoke these words last time, and I want you to know that at least one person made a decision to fully trust in Christ that very Sunday. The angels rejoice, and so do the rest of us. Amen? Amen. And so as we take up our text in verse 9, remember mostly two things that Peter is writing to Gentiles like us and that the previous verse states that those who do not trust in Christ are doomed to fall over him. Having pronounced such painful judgment on unbelievers, Peter continues with these encouraging words for believers from verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, I've had most of that passage memorized for many years because this is truly one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and there are several phrases that stand out in my mind, incredible descriptors of both me and my fellow believers, titles like royal priesthood. However, I want to start by focusing like a laser on the first two words, but you. I cannot help but think of this sweet person who came to me two weeks ago and said in tears, today I accepted Christ. I'm so excited to now be able to point her and many of the rest of you to these verses and to explain that these words have been written by God personally to you, as well as to me and to all of us who have given our lives to Jesus. But I wonder if these words are true for everyone in this room. And I figure probably not because I can't imagine that everyone in this room has ever allowed Jesus to become the cornerstone of their lives by grace through faith in Him alone. Surely among us today, there are several who have never trusted fully in Jesus Christ. I urge you to do so, or else I am afraid the opposite of everything we, want, we will learn today will be true of you. I must be diligent to tell you that there is no other person through whom you can be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No other name under heaven by which you may be saved. And so I will start by asking, are you a but you? It's okay to laugh. Are you a but you in the context of 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9? Does this passage we just read apply to you or not? If Christ is your firm foundation, meaning you trust in him and him alone and no one else and nothing else, then you are absolutely a but you this morning. That is certainly the case for many of us here, which is why we are a church. And it's why we are being built into his kingdom, even as we multiply into more churches for his glory. And so I want to get into the message, which is for you who have believed. And just to make sure some of you are out there, if you are one who has put all of your faith and trust in Christ, and you're working with God to be built upon him, please testify with a hearty amen. 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 Now, we will take two weeks to cover this, but before I break it down into all the pieces of who we are in Christ, I want to focus the lens out a little bit and point you to the bigger picture of these verses. One of the things that happens as I study a passage of Scripture in order to preach it, and as I read it over and over and, and, and think and pray through it for days or weeks, usually I understand that there is mostly one point that the inspired author intends to make. This, by the way, is generally what determines how many verses I'll try to cover in one particular sermon. I typically cover a section that's mostly making a single point. Now, there are always subpoints, but there is one theme or thesis or goal which the inspired author is trying to accomplish with each section I preach through. And this is really true of all communication. We talk about one subject at a time, generally. And so as it comes to this week's passage, I believe the point is basically your testimony. This passage is actually about your God story. It's about you proclaiming your testimony. It's about influencing both the church and especially the world with the power of what God has done in your life. 
We live in trying times. And if not us, certainly believers in many parts of the world are living in an area that looks an awful lot like tribulation. Even in our own relatively sheltered state, we are feeling more and more overwhelmed as followers of Christ. We feel like islanders and sea level is rising. How will we keep our heads above water? How will we have any victory? How can we overcome this evil world? Let's look to an end times verse today, Revelation 12, 11, which says, And they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How will we overcome all the powers of this world as well as the forces of darkness behind them? By what Christ the Lamb has done, yes, but also by the word of our testimony. That is, by the verbalization of the story of how Jesus changed our lives, or as Peter put it, by the proclamation of how he has moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Two times in this text, we are told that the result of our salvation must be proclamation. That Christ has made us new for a reason, which is at least partly so that we may proclaim both what God has done and who he is. But why does he want us to do that? Why does God want us to proclaim His excellencies? Well, it's so that they may see. Don't miss the reason why stated in the final verse of our text. We tell our story so that they may see. Oh, that they would see. Amen? Because of love, as we say around here, our slogan, that they would see. The title of this series is Keeping the Change, and the title of this message is Changing Story. I want to ask you today, what is your changing story? And I mean that in two ways, as usual with me, right? So what I mean is both, what is your story of life change? Like how you were blind, but now you see. But secondly, how is your story still changing? In other words, how are you different now than you were last year? Because as a person being built by God upon Christ, your story of change will always be changing, even as he is changing you. Altogether, this, is, this story is what the Bible refers to as our testimony. And this testimony is how you will overcome. Better yet, our combined testimonies are how Christ's church will overcome the world together. Now, with all that in mind, you have to remember things to tell your story. Have you ever noticed that? You have to recognize and remember some things about before and after. And so, I have six ways we need to remember, taken from our text. Three this week, three next week. And all of these form what I'm calling your changing story. Or to be more clear, let's just make it a how-to and put it like this. How to get a testimony. I do realize that if you're saved, you technically already have a testimony, but I'm going to show you from this text how you can wind up really understanding what God has done in such a way that you can begin to communicate something powerful to others. Because this is how we overcome evil, and flowing from the previous passage, this is how the kingdom of God gets built. 
So from our text, how can we who have believed get a testimony? Number one, remember who you are. If you were either a child of the 90s or if you had children during that time or if you are a Disney buff or basically for most people here, you are now thinking of Mufasa. Or before I even explain, I'm just curious. Straw poll, when I said, remember who you are, how many of you thought of the Lion King? Right? And you imagine when Mufasa says to Simba, remember who you are. My kids probably watched that movie 900 times when they were little, so it's indelibly connected to this phrase for me, at least. How could I not be reminded of such an iconic voice as James Earl Jones, after all? And I'll refrain from going into classic Vader lines. It's difficult for me, but I'll refrain. (laughs) But instead, I actually did have a point in bringing this up, which is this. Every once in a while, even Disney speaks truth. It's rare, but I mean, what had happened in the story of the Lion King up to that point? Mufasa, the king, had a son, Simba. And the son had messed up. In truth, he hadn't messed up as bad as he thought because of an evil influence who had twisted things around, making it worse until the son felt so much guilt and thought that maybe his father would not want to see him again and, 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 and ran away. Goes away, hangs out with a warthog with a flatulence problem <laughs> and some kind of weasel, but I digress. Son has run away out of guilt. sinks in a little after. I'm not going to sing the song. So son is hitting bottom and he has a vision of his dad who's sort of like in heaven. And his dad, the king, says, Simba, remember who you are. And see, the point is that in so doing, this wayward, guilt-ridden son comes to his senses, returns home, and vanquishes the evil that has taken root in the place where he should have been reigning as king. And remembering who he was, Simba finally did what he should have been doing all along. This actually fits the message of 1 Peter chapter 2 very well. Step one to getting a testimony, to having a story that could change someone else's life when we share it, is to remember who you are. So, who are we? as followers of Jesus. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now I could do a deep dive into each one of these descriptors and that would be fine, but I want to take a moment to say to you all that somehow some of our modern Bible studies and maybe to some degree modern preaching has caused some of us to lose sight of the forest for the trees. Now, I'm I'm certainly not saying that we should never go deeper into the details, uh, the languages, the nuances, the idioms, all of it. But let me warn against ever getting to the point where you feel like you can't get what you need by simply reading the Bible. If you've come to believe through church that you don't have enough to understand What God wants you to understand by simply reading the Bible, something is being miscommunicated in our churches. I really mean that. 
I think this is a problem. Read the Bible and take in whatever God gives you through it. God speaks through His Word, whether you understand every nuance of it or not. Folks, this thing that we're studying called 1 Peter is a letter. It's a letter written to a bunch of spiritually ignorant Gentiles who had come together as churches just like our church. This letter is not designed, frankly, to be analyzed to death by people with too much education. What was Peter saying in this passage? Let me give it to you straight. He was saying, because of what Christ has done, you are now the people of God. And your new job as his people is to proclaim what he has done for you to the world. That's what these verses are saying. Now, I will go ahead and dig a little deeper anyway. Because if you're only going to get out of my sermons what you would get by reading through the Bible on your own, that would kind of put me out of a job. Not really, but, you know, work with my jokes if you don't mind. So first, what does it mean to be a chosen race? Let me say that when you read something like this in the New Testament, something that by itself makes you kind of scratch your head, you can almost always know that the roots of it are probably in the Old Testament. You know, you do have cross-references there in your own Bible, right? You could actually look and see where it came from. You don't need a pastor to tell you. You can see that. In fact, this is mostly a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 7, but without going to that text right now, if you will simply think about this, most of you know who represented the chosen race in the Old Testament, right? The Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews. They were the chosen race. Okay, so what about now? What about today? Who is the chosen race today? Well, that is a very interesting question. I think it is very important for us to understand first that in the New Testament portion of history, there is no literal race of people that is chosen. This seems fairly obvious, but just to make sure you know what the Bible says, every tongue and tribe will surround heaven's throne. Also, as Connor mentioned last week from Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Gentile within Christ's church. And this is the exact sense in which Paul meant those words, that believers are believers. Whether or not they have Jewish or Gentile blood flowing through their veins, that there are no second-class citizens in Christ's church, in God's kingdom, no special races apart from our spiritual connection with Christ. And that the unity we have as one race under Christ ought to help us crucify any of the evils of racism remaining. Those who are chosen are those who believe, and physical race is obviously not a factor at this point, nor do we become a literal race once we are saved. But that said, we who believe are absolutely a people, a chosen people, and that is precisely what Peter means. Secondly, know that in many ways God's kingdom was never about race, never was about race, as we think of race even in the Old Testament. Now, the Israelites could certainly be thought of as a race, and they were the race in which it all began, the children of Abraham, an obvious ethnicity. But even the race or ethnicity of the Israelites was not expected to keep the kingdom of God to itself, though mostly that is what they did. Still, remember that even in the family tree of Jesus, 
prominently listed are several Gentiles. Those who had faith in Yahweh included as ancestors even of Christ. In spite of the fact that they were not part of the literal Jewish race. And so while it is most certainly not a literal race that had chosen today, in some ways it never really was about a race, except in the fact that God started with one family and made promises to that family. But again, remember that even Abraham's seed was to be a blessing to all the earth, meaning others could be brought in like ourselves. As John the Baptist put it to a certain, to certain racially oriented Jews leaders, he said, God can raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. His point was that being a part of the literal race of Jews actually gets people nothing. And that is a fact. Not by the blood of Abraham, but only by faith akin to his. Has any soul ever been saved? This is also seen in the teaching of the previous passage that only by faith in Christ, the cornerstone, the long-awaited Messiah, is anyone saved. Certainly not by physical lineage. But in fact, Peter was mostly thinking of unbelieving Jews when he spoke of them stumbling over Christ. And so to be clear, this fact about the necessity of faith in Christ means that unbelieving Jews are not in any way currently saved. And they don't get a second chance after they die because they are Jews or anything like that. Rejecting Christ in this life means being rejected by God in the next, period, regardless of race. Now, I can feel the tension in the room. And as a side note today, I don't want to leave anyone speculating on my support for Israel in light of what is going on in the world. My prayers are for Israel and peace in Jerusalem, for Israel to be protected one way or another, protected from one of the only things worse than war, terrorism. To be clear, my prayers are for Israel and also for peaceful Palestinians caught in the middle, many of whom are Christian. But frankly, my prayers are dead set against the terrorists known as Hamas. I say my prayers are against them, that they, I, I would love for them to be saved, so I don't mean that. But hopefully I've been clear enough. Back to the sermon, I do think we American Christians need to be very aware that unbelieving Israel has no hope apart from Christ. I think we've got to get this. Now that does not mean there are no further promises for the literal seed of Abraham because the Bible does promise that many more of them will come to Christ before the end. And so if you're schooled in what I consider to be divisive labels, I am not a replacement theologian. <clears throat> because I believe that there are still promises. But listen, those promises center around the future acceptance of Christ as Messiah of those Jews. You can look at Romans chapter 11 for more on that. But the fact that there are still promises for unbelieving Israel should mostly lead us to pray for their salvation, not sort of think they're probably okay. 
We need to pray for their salvation and pray that God will send laborers and bring revival to these who, will, though believing in our God, have so far rejected His Son, the only one through whom they might be saved. Now, I know that was a lot to unravel, but those who care probably got most of it. And for all of us, let me say this. If you are a believer, then you are now one of God's chosen people. And that is the point of this verse. You are not kind of, sort of, one of God's people, though not quite as much as the Jews, okay? No, Peter says, but you are now included in the only group of people that matters from an eternal perspective. The truly chosen people of God, and he's so brazen as to use the exact phrases and words that had been used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. We are 100% in. And what I want you to get is that nothing you could ever be told about yourself could be more important or exciting than this, that you are now one of the people of God. In fact, all the promises of Abraham and his descendants are now yours in an eternal sense. We've been grafted into the vine. Believers in Christ are the chosen race. Now, I do think that this truth is possibly even more exciting for us as Gentiles in a certain kind of way. Remember, Peter is talking to non-Jews here, like us. And he's saying, hey, now even you... (laughs) are the people of God. See, folks, Jews saw themselves as the people of God already. So Peter's point about joining in with the chosen race, even to a believing Jew, would have come off as kind of strange. And even unbelieving Jews are not wrong in the sense that their people have a history as the people of God. But right now my point is that our people, fellow Gentiles, have a history of not being God's people. Do you see what I'm saying? If you go back far enough in your family tree, and unless you are Jewish, you will find your ancestors did not know the one true God. Now, if you go all the way back, of course, we all wind up with Noah in common, uh, and then Adam. But stay with me, because I'm talking about the time when God chose a people. And that was through Abraham, or actually his son, Isaac. And we do not all go back to him. And so what I'm saying is that your family tree, after God chose Abraham and Isaac, was made up of unbelievers, perhaps even barbarians, as history calls them, worshiping the elements of nature. You might have been more of a, you might have go, you might go back to a more erudite group like the Greeks who were nonetheless pagan polytheists. See, folks, in terms of race, there is only one race that doesn't originate in some kind of idolatry that being the seed of Abraham through Isaac, the original people of God. And so what I'm saying is that there's a little bit of an extra cause for rejoicing for Gentile audiences like those original recipients of this letter and like ourselves, because as Peter even says a little bit further in, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. See, That statement's not true in the same way for the Jews as it is for us. They were always at least identified as the people of God as a whole. But my point is that we were not. And our families were not until they were saved. 
So what am I telling you? I'm telling you to remember who you are. Now. You are now a chosen race. Next, Peter says, but you are a royal priesthood. We talked last time about the fact that we are now priests to our God, offering spiritual sacrifices within His spiritual house, which is His kingdom, the church. And so I won't go back into this wonderful truth, but notice here a descriptive word is added. We are not only priests, but royal priests. Now, who was the very first royal priest? Don't make me explain about Melchizedek again, smart people. Because good King Mel actually was Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, as I've explained before. He simply had to have been, and Hebrews tells us plainly that he was. So the answer to my question is still Jesus Christ, who continues to be both our high priest and our high king. And here we see in our text that we're also declared by God to be both priests and kings like Jesus. Now, some of us, you ought to be thinking, wait, what? Really? That's right. I am a king. Did I just say that? Yes, on the basis of the Word of God. You and I are kings and queens in God's kingdom. As one of His, you are royal. You are regal. You are to be honored and you will be honored in triumphal possession even as you enter the kingdom of heaven to lay your crown at the feet of your high King Jesus Christ. Did you know we really are promised a crown? Now, is that crown figurative? Oh, I don't know exactly, but let's not dismiss our crowns as irrelevant, shall we? The Bible mentions several times that we will be given crowns of righteousness. So for just a minute, let that crown sink in and recognize that you are a king or a queen before God. C.S. Lewis brings this concept into the classic stories of Narnia where the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are just sort of automatically honored as kings and queens there to be esteemed by the other creatures of Narnia's heaven-like existence. And this even fits with the biblical fact that we will reign above the angels heaven's current residence, something which is hard to grasp but nonetheless promised in Scripture. Lewis taps into this biblical idiom which should be so encouraging to us that we are indeed royal through our relationship to Christ. Do you feel like a nobody sometimes? In Christ you are a king, ordained to reign as co-regent under Christ the high king. Hear God's word today. If you belong to Christ, you are a royal priest before the Lord of heaven and earth. Evil voices may tear you down and tell you otherwise, but God says you're both royal and you are a priest in Christ. Don't forget it. Next, Peter says, but you are a holy nation. I do think this is basically a repeat of another way to say that we are a chosen race. Maybe even a clearer way to say it for our modern years, where race has become such a buzzword. The word nation here is ethne, and though most literally it means ethnic group. Again, the point is obviously figurative, since the church already consists of just about every ethnicity on earth. Of course, we don't become a literal ethnic group when we become believers, but we do become a family, a spiritual family, who is to dwell together in unity 
And that is the point, to be part of the same special group of people together. In the past, I used to repeat the tired old phrase that the church is not a country club for saints, but rather a hospital for sinners. Ever heard that one? Yeah, it was super popular back in the 90s when we got a whole lot of stuff wrong in the church. But I don't say it anymore. Why? Because I've come to realize this statement is not quite all the way true, nor does it come from Scripture. Now, I got the point before back then, and that's why I said it back then. But let me tell you something. We are saints in God's eyes. Holy and pure. And we are indeed part of the most exclusive group of people that has ever been invented. There's only one way in to this club. By grace through faith in Christ. Now, of course, like you, I wouldn't want to call the church a country club. As that has certain negative connotations. But the fact is that we are the people of God and there's only one way into this group. More than just exclusive, it's holy. We are a holy nation, a set-apart spiritual ethnicity. We should never water down the holy identity of the church of Jesus Christ. And we should learn to speak of ourselves with biblical phrases, though less popular, rather than pandering to the changing whims of an unbelieving world. You want an inclusive church? Sorry, such a thing does not exist. We can give you an inclusive invitation, but the church is actually quite exclusive by definition. Now, do not pull those words out of context and put them into a gigantic meme on Facebook with my name by it, okay? Context is very important. I'm not up here making random statements of opinion. I'm applying scripture to life. If you want to put something pithy on Facebook, put the verse I'm preaching. And then you can spend the next three days fighting people over that verse in your comments if that's what you like to spend your time on. Listen, the fact is that anyone can visit, anyone can, is a welcome guest, and everyone is invited. But you can't join the true church apart from a decision to build your life on Christ. And if you don't, you're excluded. You don't become a part of this amazing family until you repent and believe. People who refuse to accept God's requirements are simply not in the club. Having said all that, sometimes the church does need to be a hospital for sinners in a certain kind of way. And so I'm not shooting that down completely. But I want you to get the heart message of our text that as believers in Christ chosen by God, we have become an integral part of a very special, unique, heavenly honored, exclusive group of people. And now back to the bigger point. We also get to help God invite others to join. How awesome is that? After all, this whole thing is about how you get a testimony that is appealing to others. And part of an appealing testimony is not watering down what it is to be, what is to be gained in joining God's holy people group, a holy nation, a chosen race. Be one of God's very own people, those who sign up, if you will, 
get to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So, it's kind of a big deal. See, folks, you don't have a testimony if nothing big happened. You get a testimony when you remember who you've become in Christ. Remember who you are. Now, as is often the case, I've covered a lot in the first point, so the other two are shorter. Step two. Remember whose you are. Peter goes on. But you are a people for his own possession. Newsflash to fellow believers. You now belong to God. You are his prized possession. He owns you. Free and clear. Now, is anybody else's human nature wanting to cry out and protest? Maybe your old man, that old self that's still in there somewhere says, hey, I don't want to be owned by anyone. Freedom! (laughs) You know, A little further along in this chapter, we're going to find out that we are actually like slaves to God. There's no watering it down. We are now in the possession of God. Maybe somebody here is thinking, no thanks. I understand. I really do. Modern humans seldom realize why they have been put on this earth. Nobody taught us, or if they tried, we didn't like what they were saying. Even after 40 plus years as a believer, I guess there's a tiny part of me that thinks, isn't this language a little bit extreme? Possession? What about free will? And yes, I do believe we have the freedom to choose. But then how come the Bible says God owns me like a slave? I actually think that the incredible consistency of the great human flaw is evidence for God. What is the great human flaw? It is the universal desire to be our own God. This is what happened to humanity when Adam and Eve sinned, rebelliously eating a fruit that gave them some special kind of knowledge. I think that the enlightenment of that moment was more or less a view towards self-sufficiency. And we can see that in the context. They began to hide from God. They wanted to make their own decisions from that point forward. They wanted to, uh, they, they had questions for God. Indeed, through a choice to break away, mankind was separated from God so that now people tend to see him as someone who wants something from them. To think that the Lord's own dirt-based creation would say back, no thank you, I don't want to be yours, God. I'll live for me and my family and my little kingdom. So if you don't mind, please just leave me alone, maybe until I die. But that is exactly what we do. Every last man, woman, and child does this in various ways. We don't really want to be completely and totally owned by God. And therein is the sin of idolatry. And yet owning ourselves is really so depressing, isn't it? I mean, really, if I belong only to myself, I do not really belong. Perhaps as a leftover desire from before the fall... We also all want to belong to someone outside of ourselves. This leaves us wanting what we cannot have without surrendering that which we are not willing to lose. Miserable. We just want to be left alone, except not really. 
No, in reality, I don't want to belong only to myself. I want to belong to someone. That is, if I can see through the veil of my own self-satisfaction, which is so unsatisfying. For starters, I want to belong to my wife, if she'll have me. I don't want to be so free that I don't know if she even wants me. No. I want to be wanted, to belong, which is to be owned. But where does this desire to be owned come from? What could be more encouraging than to be wanted by God? This is even a deeper longing than to be wanted by our parents, by the way, though we often don't recognize our hunger for that which is unseen. What is your testimony? Part of mine is that it is so good to belong to the Lord. I am His. It's so good. I'd certainly rather belong to him than Satan. And by the way, that's the choice before us. But independent of that, can we not realize how good it is to belong to God? To be owned and treasured by him? In truth, God's ownership of us is literally the only place where we will find value that lasts. Our value is in belonging to our Creator. Thankfully, he wants to have us. Not to throw us away. What if he didn't want us? But he does. God wants you. Will you not surrender to his ownership? Peter says, but you are a people for God's own possession. And see, that means everything. Remember whose you are. This is part of how you get a testimony. Third step, remember from whence you came. Peter continues, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So again, here's one of the places in our text where I get the idea that the point of remembering all this is at least partially so that we will have a powerful testimony to proclaim. All that Peter is reminding them of is not merely so that they will feel good about themselves, but ultimately so that they will proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who has done it all. I've talked about this, but let me pause once more and ask it this way. How are you doing with proclaiming the excellencies of God? In context, how are you doing with proclaiming what God has done for you and how he has made you one of his very own? I know, we probably all need to work on this. You know, we need to... We need to We need to work on our testimony. We need to share it more often. So I won't harp on you about it. But let's keep working on it. And the next step in doing so is to remember from whence you came. I never saw the movie, but I remember hearing about it. I think maybe with Vincent Price. And the name of the movie has always stuck with me. Something Wicked This Way Comes. I mean, just the title kind of creeps me out, you know. Something wicked this way comes. I think it's supposedly a classic, maybe. Honestly, I only remember the title. And I purposely decided not to Google it. Because my point is that only in hearing the title, I used to think to myself, I wonder what wickedness is coming. This week, as I prepared the message, I found myself thinking about who I am apart from Christ. 
And I thought, well, actually, if not for Christ, that movie title could have been about me. In fact, that movie title could have been about every single person on earth. Yes, the Bible says we're wicked apart from Christ. It says that. And listen, I know some people are more wicked than others. I think it makes us look foolish when we just do this equivalency thing. We make it act like nobody's any more wicked than anybody else because you have mass murderers and terrorists and things like that out there. But on the other hand, apart from Christ, we are all actually wicked. And that is super clear in the Word of God. We're flat out evil apart from Christ. Nobody likes this message. We all like to think we were good people even before Jesus, don't we? I, was, I mean, I was a good person. I was, we were good. We was, I was a good guy, good, good gal before Jesus. Even before Jesus, I, was, I mean, I was a good gal. Most of us like to think that way. Only those with the really juicy, and we might say the best testimonies, think they were wicked before Jesus. You know what I mean? Those folks whose stories are like, well, I was a drug dealer um, or a murderer or worse, a liberal. Okay, that's a joke. That's a joke. That's just designed to kind of get at you, you conservative folks out there. I was all these things and then I came to Jesus. And these are the speakers you invite to the youth group and all that. But what is it about those kinds of testimonies that's so appealing and powerful? And why is it not equally as powerful to hear from someone who was relatively moral, getting saved? Why? Some of us were saved at a young age, so (laughs) we're like, hey, look, nobody thought I was wicked when I was five years old. All right, except maybe my three-year-old sister. And no, she didn't either. She adored me, according to my mom. But I get it. We can't see pre-converted children as wicked. And I don't want to try to get anybody to see children that way this morning. I don't even know that we need to really think of our unsaved neighbors as wicked or inherently evil, folks. That's not the point. So what are we to do with passages like these? I mean, the kingdom of darkness... Isn't that like where Satan and the demons live? Yeah, pretty much. Should we say that the darkness we came from was only really more of a dimness? Like some people are really in darkness and others of us just sort of like right on the edge of darkness before crossing over to the light. No, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. Darkness is the absence of light. Before God, we are all wicked. There's simply no halfway to it before Christ. Maybe it helps to just think of ourselves as we deal with this. Seriously, this is what I try to do. I don't think even Jesus treated other people like they were wicked, you know? I mean, he saw past it or something. And so we need to be careful about this. We don't need to post online, every last one of you is wicked. And then wait to see how they respond. That would not be helpful, okay? So again, what if we just think about ourselves and not everybody else when it comes to wickedness? Since we're supposed to love people wherever they are and pray for them to be saved rather than to hate them as being wicked. Okay, so let's try this for today as we think about our testimonies. What's yours? 
Well, I said, I'd talk about me. So, what is mine? How do I think about my own wickedness, the darkness, before I came to the light? How do I paint the contrast for my own story? How do I proclaim the excellence of Him who called me out of darkness into His marvelous light? I was a very spiritual child. In church back then, three times every week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's the way it was. That's what my family did. I heard biblical preaching with the adults. Uh, I heard about hell when I was very young. And I heard about how Jesus saves. And I asked questions when I was three or four, like how can God be in heaven and here at the same time? I was a lot like my grandson, Leland, honestly, and I'm proud to say that. Recently, Leland asked about how he can have a relationship with God even though he can't see him. He's five. My parents tell me that I ask stuff like that too, even at that age. Thankfully, as I had, Leland also has some of the best parents on earth to help him with these things. But anyway, that was me. Very spiritual. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a very good kid. I prayed. I always believed Jesus was real. Always believed Jesus was real. Basically from birth. But I still needed to be saved. And at age six, I repented of my sin and asked Jesus to come into my life which he did. So what about my testimony in terms of coming out of the darkness? How can I proclaim that when I was saved as a very spiritual six-year-old? Well, there are a couple of things. First, I always share that before, I always share that before my saving moment, I felt like God was not okay with me. I felt like God was my judge, that there was just something not right that I was not at peace with God. After I repented and put my trust in Jesus, I had that peace. I knew I was forgiven for all my sin, even in the future. So for me, as a six-year-old, the darkness was unforgiveness. Hear that. The darkness I could understand at that time was unforgiveness. And Jesus took that very thing away. That's my testimony. But here's the second way. I can put this into my story that may resonate better with many adults and young adults. It's about who I would have been. If Christ hadn't saved me, I certainly wouldn't be a pastor. I probably wouldn't not have children who are devoted to serving the Lord and making a powerful difference for Him. I would not likely have such a wonderful relationship with my parents. I would not be part of this loving and supportive church family. I would never have planted churches or led anyone to Christ. I would never have gone on even one mission trip to share Jesus with people in great need. Without him, I'd probably be rich and miserable and lonely and empty. If I had not been saved at the age of six, what would have happened in my life? How much darkness would I have participated in or stirred up myself? I am a rebel at heart. I like to stretch the rules. In truth, I hate rules, especially those that don't make any sense to me. Hate them. Always have. That's my natural self. 
I'm an addictive personality. Very much so. But because I was saved young and in church, I never went down any of those destructive paths. I never drank, did drugs, smoked, uh, watched porn. Never did. Do you think I would have refrained from those things if I had not known Christ? Not a chance. And so I'd be long gone by now. Lost in the dark. In truth, I'd probably be dead. It's just the way I am apart from Christ. I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be dead, I think. But in Christ, I'm alive, spiritually and physically. In Christ, I'm loved and loving and maybe even a little bit lovable. In Christ, the who I would have been is crucified and the who I always was meant to be is fully alive. For me, at least, that's part of how I proclaim the excellencies of him who brought me out of the darkness into his marvelous light. As the old hymn goes, Without him I could do nothing. Without him I'd surely fail. Sing along if you want. Without Him I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. Without Him I would be dying. Without Him I'd be enslaved. Without Him my life would be worthless. But with Jesus, thank God, I'm saved. Maybe you know this part. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know Him today? Please don't turn him away. Oh, Jesus, my Jesus, without him, how lost I would be. That's my testimony. Next week, we'll finish this passage with three more steps to a better testimony. But as I close, I want to ask if there is anyone here who is ready to say yes to Jesus. To find out who you can be in Christ. I know you probably don't feel like you're in the darkness. I didn't really feel that way as a six-year-old either. I'm not sure my wife, who was saved at 17, would say she felt like she was in the darkness. Although she might say it was a little bit like that. What I would say to you, my friends, is that you won't really know about the darkness until you see the light. Can you see his light today? Jesus has already paid the price for your sin. Would you come to him and receive his gift of grace by faith? If so, I'd ask you to pray along with me now. And everybody, let's pray. If you want to be the day, today to be the day when you could sing that. The before ends today and the after starts. 
from last week's or the week before's message, we know what it takes. Faith in Christ as the cornerstone for our life. It means giving it all to Him and trusting Him with not only your eternity, but the rest of your time on earth. Will you surrender to Him? Will you let Him take possession? Will you let Him, you let him take ownership of your life and join that chosen race, that holy nation? Now, He does the work. You don't have to jump through any hoops, but you do have to receive it by faith. Maybe the Holy Spirit is empowering someone's faith today. Just say yes. Not to me. To God. Just in your heart right now, just say yes, Lord. I want all my faith and all my life to be built on Jesus Christ. Be my Savior. Save me. Oh, He will if you let Him. He's waiting on you. Would you surrender? He's going to change your life. You're going to have a changing story and you'll be so glad. Lord, thank you for all of the testimonies in this room. Some from recent days. 13 people we baptized just a couple months ago. Another since then. We have new stories. Hallelujah. Maybe today there's someone else. Help them to follow through. As we know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.